0: Acts chapter number 11. So let's do a brief review. I don't think we have to do as long of a one this morning. Back in chapter number 2, a group came into the church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that was the Jews. And the church was Jewish for years. But then in chapter number 8, something we're going to see alluded to here in a moment, there was a persecution hit, and it drove those Jewish Christians out. And they began to witness to partial Jews, half-Jews, Samaritans. And in chapter 8, they received the Holy Spirit. What we've been in for the last, like, what is it, five or six weeks, we've been in chapter 10 and halfway through chapter 11, covering this massive event where the first Gentile who did not become a Jewish proselyte, just as he was a Gentile man and his household, became Christians, saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that happened back in chapter 10, and it was repeated for us uh, throughout the first 18 verses of chapter number 11. And so... That kind of brings us up, these three groups, and that's where, that, that are, those are the three groups that have been brought into the church. There are not more to be brought. It's just individuals now within, within that umbrella of the three groups uh, is where we're at now. So what we're hitting is our author, Luke, is now taking us actually back to chapter number eight. Uh, some of you will remember we were in chapter six, and we saw this need for deacons, And when the deacons were brought in, there were seven of them. The first one that was listed was a man named Stephen. And so the reason our author did that is because he ends up highlighting Stephen because Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr who died for his faith. He was the first one in all of Christianity, officially the start of Christianity. He died for his faith. And then that kicked off a massive persecution, spearheaded, remember this name, by a man named Saul of Tarsus. And so Saul spearheads this great persecution, and it's going to put Christians on the run. Some, many Christians did stay in Jerusalem, but a lot of them had to flee. And I mean, not just imprisoning, but torturing and killing, murdering. Thankfully, in chapter 9, the great persecutor actually gets saved himself. And then he ends up being called to be the great apostle to the Gentiles. So you kind of put all that together and you see how the flow of our author here is working through the historical birth and growth of the early church. So with that in mind... Told you it would be a little shorter than normal. Um, Would you look with me at verse number 19? So Cornelius' family, they've just gotten saved, and we've read the account of that. Now verse 19, let's read down to verse 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So now we're going back in our mind, back to chapter number 8. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled. And listen, they went every direction. They went all different directions. But our author here is going to take us on the northward direction. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the word. So they're running for their lives. But as they go, they're speaking the gospel. And they're declaring the good news of salvation in Christ. But the verse says, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So taking the gospel, fleeing for their lives, telling it just to Jews, but something massive happens in verse number 20. But there were some of them, we don't even know these people's names, these are, these are heroes, but some of them, men of Cyprus, this is an island, you'll see it on a map in a, in a moment, men of Cyprus and Serene, that's down in, in North Africa. So, some of them, that's that's their original place. Some of them, men of Cyprus and Serene, who on coming to Antioch... Quick note, Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So they've gone 300 miles by this point. Some of them, men of Cyprus and Serene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. So the church has been spreading out. They're sharing the gospel only with Jews. But then some unnamed men decide they're going to share the gospel with the Hellenists also. Preaching the Lord Jesus. Let me insert this very quickly. This may be making too much of the text, may be parceling out too much, but some have offered that is it intentional that our author here is saying that they began preaching the Lord Jesus and not preaching Jesus Christ? So kind of file that away. The version that they're preaching to these people is that Jesus, his name Jesus means Savior, and that he's Lord, Lord Jesus, the Savior and Lord. Some have said their message is not so much that he's the Christ, the anointed one that's the prophecy fulfiller of the nation of Israel. They're just preaching the Lord Jesus, salvation in him. Will it work? Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number. You're going to see that phrase, that idea, great number, three times in today's text. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So they're they're preaching, and a great number believe the message, and when they believe, they're turning to the Lord, obviously turning from their sin to the Lord. This happens 300 miles away from Jerusalem. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They're hearing what's going on. They've already heard what's happened with Cornelius. Gentiles can get saved. Now they're hearing that this is happening up 300 miles away. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent... Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas, hey, would you be willing to go? Sure. Here's what we need you to do. Go check this out. This is the port we're getting. We're hearing about this. Go see if it's legitimate. See what's going on. When he came and saw the grace of God, he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. I'm going to insert something here quickly. Last week we finished in verse number 18 that when the people in Jerusalem who were very legalistic and thought Gentiles had to come under... The law, when they'd heard this report that Cornelius, the Gentile, and his family had gotten saved and received the Holy Spirit, and they kind of wondering, Peter, what are you doing eating with Gentiles? When Peter gives an account, line by line, event by event, what led him to share the gospel with this Gentile person, when they heard it, they glorified God by admitting the facts, yes, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. So I see a very, diff- a very different level of degree between the reaction in verse number 18 and the reaction of Barnabas in verse 23 they glorified God by stating the facts these others did but Barnabas look at it again when he came and saw the grace of God he was glad and he exhorted them all all these new believers to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose and the other guy like purpose your heart you remain faithful to the Lord You're going to to feel things pulling you away. But you set your heart with great purpose because things are going to come against you. You're going to have to have a steadfast heart that is purpose. You stay faithful. So he exhorted them. Why is he doing this? Verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people. I'll pause for a moment. Uh, Verse number 24. For he was a great man, full of the Holy Spirit. And of faith. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. And a great many people, here we see it again, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So now we've got all these people following the Lord. Now what? We've got this massive church, apparently, is the implication in verse number 24, up in Antioch. Now what are we going to do? So verse 25, Barnabas does something very unusual. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And the idea there, look, and when he found him, here's what that means. It's like he had a hard time finding him. Some have coupled what this scene with what Paul has to say later about his own life that for Christianity he lost everything. Some have proposed that Saul return back to his hometown of Tarsus to escape persecution himself from Jerusalem. And when he got there, he tried to minister for a while, and all of a sudden, he ends up getting kicked out of his own household and his own family disown him because of him taking on the name of Christ himself. We don't know that for sure. And by the way, this has now been years since Paul, the apostle Paul, has fled and gone back to his hometown. Look again at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, In other words, again, it took some time. He brought him to Antioch. I'm not going to say this later. I want to insert it now. Barnabas apparently is an influential person. Very influential. Saul, there you are. Hey, listen. I am sure God is blessing you here and using you here. But you got to see what God is doing in Antioch. We need you there. Come. Paul's attitude? Okay. I'll come with you. And again, verse verse 26, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they, Barnabas and Saul, met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We call ourselves Christians today. This is where it began, by the way. This term, Christians, is only going to come up a couple more times in the New Testament. It does not catch on quickly. It does not catch on quickly. Possibly a derogatory term. Maybe a making fun of term. Or maybe just a factual observation. These people are Christians. And We'll finish there today. Would you notice three things? Actually, can I have the map? Let's look at that. Look at this map, if you would. Focus on it just for a moment. And I'm going to throw it up there because you'll see the pertinent information. Verse number 19, just keep the map there. Verse 19 says, Now, when, now those who were scattered, when they were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Serene, that's northern Africa, when they came to Antioch. So you see, down here you see Jerusalem, lower and then you see Phoenicia would be modern-day Lebanon, and that's over by the sea. You can't. This is, this is such a high view, you don't even see the Sea of Galilee. You see the Dead Sea, but you can't see the Sea of Galilee that would be under the, H, uh, under the H there. But that's Phoenicia, and so Christians are going that far. Some Christians even fled over to the island of Cyprus. But eventually they make their way to Antioch, and this is going to be a very important city. Antioch is key moving forward, really for the rest of the book of Acts. And then you see at the end of our text in verse 25 and 26 Barnabas is going to leave Antioch and go around out of what modern day Syria and go over to modern day Turkey and he's going to go to Tarsus and find Barnabas and find Paul and bring him back. And so with that in mind would you notice only two things two big categories with me today verse n- number 19 to 21 number one let's just real simple the beginnings of the Antioch church because this is going to be a very important church this really is the key this is this church is now going to take the lead uh, from chapter 13, really, to the end. Rome is going to be in view, but this Antioch church is going to be the church that's sending out so many Christians. So verse number 19, look at it. Now when they were, now, when, now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, and Antioch speaking the word, but only to Christians. Notice this with me. When Christians go anywhere, they take with them something extremely valuable. I believe the most, I I know this to be a fact, the most valuable thing anyone can have, and I hope everyone in here this morning has it, the most valuable thing you have is eternal life, is salvation, is that you do not perish, but you have this eternal life. That's the most valuable thing you can have. But the most valuable, transferable thing anybody can have, you catch the difference, The most valuable thing that you can transfer to someone else is knowledge. Do you understand? Knowledge is very valuable, extremely. Let me give you a secular example. If you had two pieces of information, and the second one has layers to it, do you understand the power and the ability if if some person here this morning, for a fact, and you knew what it was, you knew next week's Powerball jackpot lottery numbers. If you have that knowledge... And it's not gambling at that point. You understand? It's not gambling at that point. You would be crazy not to, I want these numbers. What's it going to cost? Well, I want the big. I have no idea. I have no idea how much those cost. Some of you will have to tell me after. <laughs> I don't know what they cost. So I don't know. I'm putting $20 on these. I, don't, I have no idea. They are going to win big money. But if you add to that a second piece of knowledge, and that would be all of the NFL scores in the month of December. So this person gets these millions of dollars with this other knowledge. Do you know what you could do with that? You would become, within just a few weeks, a multi, multi multi-billionaire. You would wipe out Atlantic City and Las Vegas. You would own them because they'd be like, this is impossible. But if you know all the scores of the NFL in in the month of December. Now, having this money to invest, and again, it's not gambling because you're like, man, that would be awesome. I would love to have that knowledge. Listen to me. Every Christian in this room has something that's far more valuable than that. There is a real hell and a real heaven. And every person in the world is going to one or the other. And there's only one way to go to heaven and one way to escape hell. And if you're a Christian, you have that information. And they had the information. They have this knowledge. The problem is they're only giving the knowledge to other Jews. Their conscience would not let them share this gospel With anyone outside of other Jews. We've been talking about that that dynamic. If you would look at verse number 20. Notice the next thought. But. So it's like having this on a far lesser scale. And I know this means a lot to some of you. Because you're family and you've been touched with this. On a far lesser scale it's like having the knowledge of how to cure every cancer there's ever been. And you have it, but you don't share that knowledge with anyone. You're like, nobody would. Do you understand? There are some Christians today that have salvation, and they have the knowledge of eternal life, but they're not sharing it. And that is way more valuable. But to these people's credit, they're actually sharing it, but they're only sharing it with one group of people. And this is a very small minority in the whole scheme of things until... Some unnamed men in verse number 20, look at it. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Serene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Warren Wearsby, I don't know this to be a fact. Warren Wearsby offers that in the ancient times there were 16 different Antiochs Antiochus, Antiochus, however you want to say that. This was a powerful ruler uh, under the Greek Empire. In, Alexander the Great, one of his generals, and that whole family ends up coming in. Very powerful leader. And the cities end up popping up named after this man. Possibly 16. I know this. In chapter 13, we're going to see two different Antiochs. This is the greatest one. In all of the Roman Empire, the three largest populations in the entire Roman Empire, number one is Rome, number two is Alexandria, Egypt, number three is our city right here, is Antioch of Syria. Had a population of about a half a million people. So this is the greatest of all of the Antiochs. This thing has, we have that up? I think that's our note next. Is that not right? This city is extremely well known. It's known for being cosmopolitan. You know what that means? You're like, yeah, that's a magazine. Um, Here's what it means. People from all around the world are in this city. Again, over half a million people are in it. This is a city that is, now pay attention to this because, again, this is a prominent city in the remainder of our book. Not only over half a million people, but they're known to be very wealthy. Lots of glitz, lots of glamour. This This city has a main street that flows north and south. It's four miles long. It is paved with marble. On each side it has colonnades. This city is the first one in all the world that has lighted streets at night. This is the first one. Again, people from all around the world, we're told there, there's evidence of people from Persia there, people from India, people even from China were in this city of Antioch. This, again, all different kinds of people, all different backgrounds. And it's very wealthy, very wealthy, well-to-do, opulence, glory and glitz and glamour. But along with that, again, I'm borrowing from Wiersbe, he offers that 2nd to Corinth... It'll come up later. 2nd to Corinth, this is possibly and probably the most wicked city according to the Bible. And so the people living here, they don't think of it as a, a wicked city. They're just enjoying life. They like living life the way they are. But this city, is to catch these descriptions, they're particularly known for their sexual perversion. Lots of sexual perversion. Lots of idolatry the mythical gods, and other just made-up gods, and physical statues and things, and ideas, and lots of idolatry. Put those two together, and you actually have a third nuance, and they have religious prostitution. So again, just sexual perversion, lots of idolatry, but then religious prostitution. They, this city, had this belief that, The mythical god Apollo fell in love with a human woman named Daphne. And he pursued her five miles outside of Antioch into this laurel grove. And that's where he found her. And they did what they did. And so prostitutes, in essence acting as priestesses, would reenact this every night. And their suitors would pay money to pursue the prostitutes into the laurel grove. And then all kinds of wickedness would happen. This is the city that we're talking about. One other thing it was especially known for is races and contests and competitions and lots of gambling. It was known. You want to gamble? Money is flowing over in Antioch. Did you get my descriptions? Lots of sexual immorality. A lot of wealth and opulence. People from all around the world. Prostitution. A lot of gambling. What does that sound like? Sounds like Las Vegas, doesn't it? Let this sink in. Of all the places in the world where God's going to raise up a church that is going to be really the sending church, it was at a place just like Las Vegas. Now, you and I, we were quick to just write off, that's what's happening here. This was Las Vegas of its day, and God says, that's where my name is going to be glorified. I'm going to re-identify that city. That's going to become a stronghold for me. Now, verse number 20, I need to drill down just for a few moments because, again, we struggle. And we're going to get a little teachy here for a moment. So, a little warning. You're like, wait, we're about to get teachy. I thought, yeah, just for a moment, a little more teachy. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Serene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists. All right, we've seen this word before, and so I'm just going to throw it out. In Acts, and, and you're going to have to dig it out. I don't have time to unpack this. I'm just going to make a statement that I'm very confident about. In Acts chapter number six, this same word, Hellenist, was used for Jews. Jews who were born outside. So you have Israel, these are native born Jews, and outside of Israel, there's lots of Jews that were born and they would come for the feast. But these were called Hellenistic Jews because they spoke the Greek language. That's chapter number six. Here we have the exact same word except this time it's being used not for Hellenized Jews but for non-Jews who speak the Greek language Gentiles. So the same idea. Here these, these unnamed Jewish believers come to the city of Antioch and they begin sharing the gospel with Gentiles, Greek-speaking Gentiles, because the Greek culture was so dominant. And the Greek language was the common spoken language of the day. You say, now wait a minute. The same word is used for Jews in one, one part of the book and later on. And you say, how do you know that? All I can say is the context tells us that the word means this. If you'll study it out, it is very clear that Hellenists in chapter 6 are Jews. And Hellenists here stands for the Hellenized Greek-speaking Gentiles but now we need to drill deeper verse number 20 makes an implication and this is where I, we're going to struggle because we're so used to this and you're like What's, I don't see the big deal would you ask the Lord right now say Lord help me to go back in, in my mind help me to go and put myself in their shoes I want, I want to feel the importance of this why is this put in the Bible it seems to be important if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. It, this is implying, verse number 20 implies, that these Jewish believers, here's your key word, spontaneously give the gospel to Gentiles before they've even heard about Cornelius. If you've been with us, you have an advantage. If you don't, it's going to take you a moment. So here's what's important about this text. These Jewish Christians make their way to Antioch. They've only ever shared the gospel with Jews. But what this saying is, and by spontaneous, you know what I mean. Spontaneous on their end. We know that God is sovereign moving this. They just spontaneously start sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And the implication, again I wouldn't die for this, but I think the impression of the text is, they start doing this. They've not heard of Cornelius. Now we know that Cornelius and his family are the first Gentiles to become Christians and receive the Holy Spirit. The implication is that's happened before, but they don't know it. So as far as they're concerned, this is the first time. It's not the first time, but it's as if it's the first time. To them, it was the first time. You say, how do we know? The way that Luke has written the book makes it clear that Cornelius was first. But also we know, you remember back in Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. And what has happened, some people make these ridiculous jokes and anecdotes that There's heaven and there's these big pearly gates and Peter's out front and Peter has the keys and Peter decides, oh, are you going to get, as if Peter decides who gets to go to heaven or hell. That's not the use of the keys. What it meant is as the the doors of faith and the doors of the church spiritually are open to different groups, Peter is the constant. Peter is the one who opened the door of faith to the Jews. He's there when the Jews received the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. In chapter number 8, he's there when the Samaritans, half Jews, received the Holy Spirit. He's there in chapter number 10. So we know that this is after that, but it seems that they don't even know it. A little more teaching. Drilling down a little further. Would you go with me? These unnamed evangelists dared to talk of salvation. Got to follow me. They dared to talk of salvation through Jesus to people who have apparently little Or no knowledge of Israel's covenant relationship with God. They come to Antioch. Next thing we know, they're talking to Gentiles. And the idea is, the person I'm talking to, they don't know what we now call the Old Testament. They don't know the prophets and the law. And these people just start talking to them about salvation in Christ without them having a knowledge of Israel's special covenant with God. And so here's where I ask this question. In their mind, they had to wonder, will it work? Will this work? I broke that down into three more questions. Go with me. So wait a minute. You're talking to people. They don't even know the basics, background of the Old Testament. Seems as though they don't. Excuse me. Question number one. Will Gentiles even listen if they don't know the background of the Old Testament? Will they listen? I'm sure some did and some didn't. Question number two. Can a Gentile... Learn enough about how to be saved without having the background of the Old Testament. Can they learn enough to even get saved? Question number three. Same idea, slightly worded different. Is it a requirement for a person to have at least a good working knowledge of Israel's special covenant with God in order to be saved? Will it work? Do y'all feel my questions? Number one, will they even listen? Number two. Are they going to be able to get enough knowledge of how to be saved if they don't have this other knowledge? Which leads to the same question, reworded. Is it a requirement to have at least some level of knowledge about the covenant of Israel with God in order to be saved? What's the answer to that last question? Is it a requirement to have a good working knowledge of Israel's covenant with God in order to be saved? Yes or no? No. When I talk to someone about salvation, I do not say, hey, let me take you back to Genesis chapter 12. Let's talk about how God called Abraham. And now let's go over to Exodus. The Jews were in slavery. And I want to show you, you know, you've heard about Passover? I don't do that. I just start teaching and preaching about Jesus. And that's what they're doing. You say, well, did it work? Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the last thing here, I'm going to drill down one more layer. And I'm admitting to you, I'm, my mind just wandered, and I want you to wonder with me. How did this happen? How did these unnamed heroes get liberty to take this step? How did that happen? I thought of three ways, and you'll think of two or three more on your own time if you want to think about it. I, I just stopped here. I was like, okay, that's enough. Is this what happened? Are these guys running for their lives, sharing the gospel with Jews, but one day... They're thinking about the last thing Jesus said, where Jesus said, in essence, as you go into all nations, make disciples. I wonder if they're like, hey, you remember Jesus' last command? Yeah. How do you think we're doing at that? I mean, and maybe followed up with this. Do you know what Jesus did not say? He did not say, go into all the nations and make proselytes to Judaism. He didn't say that. He said we're supposed to be making disciples to him. Are we doing a good job of that? Framed that way, no, we're not. I think we need to start telling Gentiles. They've not even heard about Cornelius. They're just gonna launch out and start doing it. Second scenario is this what happened? Do they find their way to Antioch and now they're out of the bubble of Jerusalem where like almost everybody there except some Roman officials and, and soldiers? It's all Jewish. They're 300 miles away and it's now minority Jewish, Gentiles everywhere. And all of a sudden, they're finding themselves in relationships with Gentiles. And did they make acquaintances and develop a burden? Did this happen? And you say, remember, they didn't have any dealings with Gentiles. But again, outside of the bubble, some of those scruples and bruised conscience that took place down in Jerusalem. Man, that's gone because we got to live among these people. We have to live and I have a business and I have to have supply people. And one of my guys is a Gentile guy. I kind of like him. I kind of like him. And you know what haunts me? The guy's got a soul. And he's going to hell. He doesn't know about Jesus. I I, I want to tell him. Is that what happened? And of course, the third may be more obvious. Is this what happened? We're Gentiles coming into the synagogues, and Christians are going into the Jewish synagogues, and these God-fearers who are allowed to sit in the back, does it occur to them all our life? We've been taught we have to get them to become Jewish, and then we can tell them about Christ and get them saved. They're not doing it. I'm going to tell them. I'm gonna go straight. I'm gonna skip the step. I'm just gonna go share the gospel with this guy. To, I'm gonna get with Bob. Hey, Bob, I need to talk with you. I know she's been sitting back there, and I don't know why you haven't become Jewish, but listen, I don't think you have to. You just need to know about Jesus. Jesus, what about Jesus? G- and he tells them about Jesus, and he, and he believes and gets saved. And I think that's what happened. Do you understand the risk that they felt? I thought of this this week somebody had to be the first hang glider. Didn't they? You yeah. know, oh, look, kites. Hey, I wonder if we were to do, like, really thick fabric in a big frame, Maybe me make a harness. I bet that'd hold up one of us. I oh, probably would. And they make it. I think that thing would hold us up. Yeah, me too. Why don't you give it a shot? No, why don't you give it a shot? And one of them eventually, somebody was the first hand glider, okay. Maybe it didn't go well. Oh, oh you all right? No. Oh, I got a limb in my rib, you know, like... Got a punctured lung. Who kn- Somebody had to do it first. These guys are heroes. I'm going to tell them. Are you real? I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to tell them that's all they need to know. And God blessed it. Look at verse number 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Would you write this down? The hand of the Lord was with them. Effective ministry. Grace for you, please remember this. Effective ministry is never about human technique. It's never about human talent. It is always about proclaiming the truth of God with the favor of God. That's effective ministry. Let me balance that by saying you can draw crowds with human techniques and methods. There's some proven ones that work. And I'll admit to you, you can draw a crowd with talented human beings. We will Go look at somebody else that has a lot of talent. I'm Right now, I am in possession of two different things. One in December and one in February. Where I have paid money to go watch talented people do their thing. Well, I hope they're talented. The one I, I know is talented. I hope that light blue team uh, that I've bought tickets for. I hope they're talented the night I go watch them. You can draw a crowd with talent and technique. But effective ministry that really impacts people's lives for the glory of God, you've got to give the message of Christ and proclaim the truth of Christ and God with the power and the favor of God. So much so, I'm going to offer to you, the hand of the Lord is the determining factor of ministry success. It is the. Just doing ministry, that's not the determining factor. Doing ministry accurately and correctly digesting and speaking the Word of God. That is not going to be the main factor. That is a part of it. Ultimately, the success of ministry boils down to this one thing. Does it have the hand of God's favor upon it? That's the key factor. It's much more than just being accurate. It's much more than just being pure. It's God has to put His favor on something. And when that happens, then that's effective ministry. Before we hit our second point this morning, after you've written that, would you join me? I want to illustrate this over in Matthew chapter number 9. Go if you would. The only other time I think we turn is Matthew 9. I want you to see it here. Here's an example. So Jeff, again, remind me what is the point you're making? The hand of the Lord is the key to all effective ministry. Just being biblical, just being accurate, just being loving... It's not enough. You have to have the hand of the Lord on it. Matthew chapter number 9, look at verse number 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds. So he's going around. He's teaching. He's proclaiming. He's healing everything. When he saw the crowds, these massive crowds following Jesus around, he had compassion. Literally, he was physically moved inside. Like his organs were moved physically. He really felt it. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. These crowds, they're harassed. They're leaders. Life is beating them down. They have illnesses and sickness and oppression from demonic forces. He looks on them. He has compassion because they were harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that pitiful? Picture a bunch of sheep and there's danger all around. But there's no shepherd looking out for them. And these Jewish leaders were certainly not looking out for their people. And Jesus looks at it and, man, he is moved. So much so that he tells his 12 disciples. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. You see that, guys? The need is urgent. The need is dire. It is desperate. There's so much physical and spiritual and emotional, so much need. The problem is the laborers are few. There's all this need, but there's not enough people out there sharing the good news about me. And then he says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his field. Did you catch what just happened? Guys, look at them. The need is dire and desperate. The door, the opportunity is wide open. It is a large door of opportunity. The problem is there's not many people out winning people to Christ. We need more laborers. Watch what Jesus does not do. He does not say, see the need, see the opportunity. Therefore, you guys get out there and go tell them. He doesn't do that. He does that in chapter 28. Do you see what he does? Therefore, go tell them, Lord. No. Therefore, pray. Pray. Ask God to put his favor and his blessing. That's the determining factor. I will tell you in chapter 28 to go tell them. But first you must pray. Grace, if you can ask you a question. Just answer within your heart and be honest. Do you pray for our ministry? Be honest with yourself. Do you, you, you. Ask yourself, do I pray for our ministry? Or are you just one of these people just assume you take for granted? I'll go there and God will talk to me. Seems like he usually does. You understand the hand of the Lord is the determining factor of effective ministry. It is never about our little techniques. It's never about talent. You need to beg God earnestly, Jesus, like earnestly, authentically, God, please, you know it is all depending upon you. God, would you please meet with us today? God, would you change us and use us to affect this community? Please, God, this whole mission trip, it's it's dependent upon you. You've got to do something. Do you ever do that? Or is there just a few of us doing that? We need you to join us. Number two, back in Acts 11, Barnabas investigates the Antioch church. Barnabas investigates the Antioch church. So, a report of this came back in verse 22. The church sends Barnabas to go check it out. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. And he was glad. So, I want to propose something to you God's grace, when his favor is being poured out among people, you know what I have found? That is visible. To people who've actually tasted it before. The grace of God being poured out in a ministry, on a person, in an area, it is visible to those who've tasted it before. Someone who's experienced the grace of God in salvation, they're talking with someone, and they could like, "Hey, I know what that sounds like. I believe this person's saved. They know what it looks like. Again, they know what it sounds like and looks like. So if are taking notes, since Barnabas, being a Christian, having tasted of the great goodness of the Lord, he sees and he recognizes the hand of God moving mightily among the people at Antioch because the grace of God is visible to him. I don't know how he got there. I thought about this. I wondered, did they send a message? Hey, Barnabas is coming, and they get ready, and like, hey, there's a guy coming. He's going to check it out. Everybody be on your P's and Q's. Gentiles, you straighten up. Hey, wear, wear your suits and ties this week if you don't mind. Barnabas is coming. Ladies, wear your dresses. I don't, know. I don't think that's probably what happened. You say, what do you think? I don't know. Did Barnabas do this? Did he just sneak in? just slide in? Hey, man, how's it going? What's your name? Barnabas. Barnabas. Awesome. Good to have you this morning. Have you been here before? Nope. Never been here. Oh, great. Do you know what we're about? Yeah, I've kind of heard. I've heard some really good things. I just want to kind of just observe. And he just starts watching. I know, though, if that's the case, it wouldn't take long until somebody, because from where they came from, somebody's going to go, Barnabas? Barnabas? Barnabas, what are you doing here? Hey, man, that's, that's great. God is working here. That's what I hear. Let me show you some stuff. Now, I've got to warn you. These Gentiles are different. I know they're different. I mean, they're really different. you got to understand, it's really different. And they take him around. They're like, look what God's doing here and look what God's doing there. So he comes and he sees the grace of God. I want to ask you in your mind, what do you think he saw? You think he saw something visible. Oh, I see. Oh, there's, there's God. He's right over there in the corner. Oh, that's God working. What did he see? I proposed to you he saw the following. Barnabas saw people from all different backgrounds united in their love for God and in their love for each other. He saw people with joy. He saw people with hunger for God, hunger for His Word. He saw people with a burden for lost people. He saw people that... Very imperfect and in their sin in some areas. But they were turning from that sin progressively as they lived and turning to the Lord. This is the grace of God among people. I'll say it again. He comes. What does he see? People from all different backgrounds, man. They love God. They're united in that. They love each other. They're joyful. They're hungry for God. They're hungry for his word. They love lost people, and they're turning from their sin, and they're turning to God. That's the things that I want to be the distinctive marks of grace grace for you. That's what I want to see. When a saved person walks in our church, it's like, God is here. When a lost person comes in, they may not know all of that. They may just be like, those people actually love God. They love each other. I think they wanted me there today. They love that Bible. And I tell you what, that lady I work with that goes over there, she's like a whole different person over the last two or three years. She's just changing. Something's happening there. And they care about people. That's the distinctive marks I want to be said of us. Would you look at verse number 24? I want you to look at the first word. You got your Bible open? Verse 24. What's the first word? First word is? Four. Three letters. Give me a synonym for the word four. I heard over here. I'm sorry? Because. Do you see that? Back up to verse 23, because I have a question for you. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose... For he was a good man, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So he's a good man, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's full of faith. The word for could mean, so if we just start there again, it's because he was a good man, because he was full of the Holy Spirit, because he was full of faith. What is that describing? What's that modifying? It's modifying some activity back in verse number 23. What is it modifying? I'm going to ask you this morning. Does that mean because he's full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, And because he's a good man, that's why he was able to recognize the grace of God when he saw it. Or is it saying this, that's why he was glad when he saw the grace of God. Or is it saying this, that's why he exhorted them to continue with the Lord faithfully. What activity is this word modifying? Is it, that's why he could see it. Or that's why he celebrated it. Or that's why he preached to them. It is all of them. It is all of them. And so as we Move forward in our message today. I'm not going to outline it to death. I want you to just kind of feel this passage, and we're going to be bragging, admittedly, on this man Barnabas. Because our text has a lot of good stuff to say about Barnabas. But everybody's got to get this. This is not just in the Bible so that we, we here look at Barnabas over there and go, man, that guy's great. It's here so we would say, that's a great quality in him, is that quality in my life. So I'm going to be asking you, as we state something obvious from the text, ask yourself, is that true of me? The text preaches itself as we unpack it in a manner of teaching. Would you back up to verse 22? And Again, several qualities, I'll group some and I'll single out some. The first one's grouped together. Verse number 22, a report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Think of that. They sent Barnabas. Hey, would you go check it out? What does that tell us? Write it down. Number one, Barnabas was trustworthy. and Barnabas was wise. He's trustworthy. He's wise. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. He's honest. He's wise. To finish out your statement, by them sending Barnabas to go check things out in Antioch implies that they saw Barnabas as a man of great discernment. He's trustworthy. He's wise. This guy has great discernment, and he's going, to t- he's going to be honest with you. He's going to call it like it is. He's not going to pull any punches. He's going to shoot it straight. We can count on Barnabas. Remember that when Barnabas, when, when the Jerusalem church was shutting out Saul of Tarsus, who got saved three years earlier, finally Saul of Tarsus, after getting saved, makes his way to Jerusalem. None of the church people want to let Saul in because they think he's faking. This is the great persecutor. He's pulling us out so he can kill us. No, it's Barnabas that comes and says, no, no, no. He really did get saved. And his testimony carried a lot of weight. And then Saul started going in and out among the apostles. I thought of it this way. We have December 10 coming up. So we have people from time to time. They'll present themselves as a candidate. I want to present myself as a candidate to be baptized. And at other times after going through a class, I want to present myself to be a, a member of Grace Free Church. And when that happens, we have people designated to validate their testimonies. And whichever side of that you're on, if you're every one of our people, and those of you, you know who you are, when it's your job to validate someone's testimony, it is not, boy, I hope you say the right thing. Oh, I'm glad you said something like that. That's all I needed. I don't really want to go into it. No, your job is to discern, is this person truly a Christian before we let them go into the waters of the baptistry? Because we don't need people just getting wet thinking, I got saved and my sins got washed away that day. I got baptized. No, no. So we're going to interview them. We're not just going through the motions. You need to be reliable and trustworthy and wise to discern. Again, not criticizing, but trying to find, does this person really express faith in Christ? When the church in Jerusalem needed somebody to go, they could think of no one better. Barnabas, you go. Next thought. Verse 23, Barnabas was gracious, very gracious. I ask you this morning, are you gracious? Are you known as a gracious person? Barnabas was. He comes to the meeting, the church meetings, no doubt house churches. He's 300 miles away. It's very Gentile. The Gentiles have just flooded these meetings. Y'all with me right here? Watch this. These Gentile meetings would have a very different dynamic, a whole different tone than the Jewish meetings down in Jerusalem. Do you all understand if you were to go to 10 churches here in Anderson, each one would have a different dynamic and a different feel, and it wouldn't be right or wrong. It would just be different. You're like, yeah, I've been to that church over there and that one over there, and it, it is different than here, and this church is different. And it's not that one is wrong. So here's the idea. Barnabas is all of a sudden in a church that is like dominated by Gentiles. And i got to believe his Jewish brothers are going like, hey, good to see you. Just kind of warning you. It's a little different vibe up here. And when Barnabas sees it, what's his honest, genuine reaction? His reaction is, praise the Lord. This is awesome. That doesn't offend you? It doesn't offend you? No. Glory to God for what's happening here. More glory to God because of what... There's going to be like more people in heaven, fewer people in hell. Offended. This is awesome. This is so cool. I love it. I love it. I am so glad this is happening. Are you gracious like that? Write these two thoughts down. Barnabas demonstrated grace back in chapter 4 when he donated his property to be sold and given to people that had financial need. He just demonstrated grace. He's a very gracious person. And the next thought. I want you to notice that he also promoted grace when he went and vouched for Saul of Tarsus. When everybody thought Saul was really not saved, he's faking, he's lying. Barnabas in chapter 9 goes to bat for, for Saul, validating, oh no, he really did get saved. So what have we seen? He's trustworthy, he's wise, he's gracious. Stay in verse 23 just for a moment. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Barnabas was an exhorter. Barnabas was an exhorter. I don't expect anyone here to know the answer to this, but don't look back to chapter 4. Does anybody remember his real name? Barnabas is not his name. Does anybody remember? I heard the first letter. I'm not sure. i have Joseph, we got a winner. Carol just won the $100, See me up, and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this guy's name is not Barnabas. You say, well, then why is that? Because the apostle said, hey, Joseph, yeah? We're not calling you Joseph anymore. Why? You're Barnabas. Barnabas means son of consolation. Barnabas means he's an exhorter. So Paul in Romans chapter 12 lists like seven primary spiritual gifts. And it's pretty apparent that this man's primary spiritual gift out of that list is exhortation. If you're taking notes, write it down. His gift is exhortation, which means to come along beside people to encourage them. And he would do this individually. He would do this in small groups. He would do this in large groups. This man is a natural encourager and an exhorter. And really, it's, it's when it's hard. When life and following Christ is the hardest, that's when he's really there to encourage and exhort. It made me think, I've used the illustration before. I used to coach basketball in high school. And a drill that we ran every day. I always liked having 12 players so I could split them up in groups of two. And we ran a drill every day called zigzag drill. And zigzag drills really simple, but it's very fatiguing. It's very, very hard. It's just very, it's, it's where two guys are going one-on-one. One guy has the basketball, and he's zigzagging up the court. He's working on his ball handling, and the other guy is supposed to be getting down a lot deeper than I'm going to do right now, getting his arms, arms out, looking big. I'm looking over here. You've done that a few times, Garrett. It'll wear you out. It looks simple, and you think, what are they all sweating and huffing and puffing for? 90 seconds of zigzag will have you sweating out of breath. I'll promise you. So I would have six groups of two going around the court. And the one's working on his ball handling. The other one is working on his defense. And I would just go and I would pick one, usually the one I saw not working very hard. But as I would go, come on, move your feet. Let's go. Move, move, move. Move. Let's go. That group suddenly sprung to life. They were the most energetic. And you'd see the other guys on the court go, he's over looking. He's looking. This is Barnabas. Barnabas, sorry to use so many illustrations. Years ago, I I, I did car line over at the Christian school. And the first day that they brought kindergartners, it was eventful. In August, when the K-5ers showed up, or K-4, and if those mamas in the car line dared to hug them goodbye, and there I am, a total stranger, standing there, you're getting ready to come out here and go into this strange building and your mama's gonna drive off. And mama said, Y'all been and hug them. Oh, I love you, but that's it. It's over because they are now clinging to you. She, they're not letting go. Paul's admonition and exhortation to these brand new believers is you cling to the Lord. You hold fast to him with great purpose. Don't let anything come. It's not that you've got to keep your salvation. It's just as the more life hits, the more you realize I am totally dependent upon you. I will not leave you, Lord. Help me be faithful. Could I exhort you this morning? Cling to God. Don't quit. Don't ever quit. Next, would you write this down? Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Verse 24, he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. So what does full of mean? Write it down. To be full of here means simple, you could say, to have an abundance, right? To have abundance. But even more true, it's the idea of, in this case, to be consumed with, controlled by, identified by. To be so consumed with something, so consumed with faith. So controlled by the Holy Spirit that people actually identify that guy's a guy of faith. She is a woman of faith. She is a person who's regularly filled with the Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit, listen, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit automatically did two things. Number one, he immersed you in the family of God spiritually, baptized you. But he also literally indwells your body. Barnabas was the kind of man that didn't just have the Holy Spirit living inside, The Holy Spirit dominated, controlled, consumed him. It was the idea as if, man, he has an abundance of the Holy Spirit. In a moment, I'm going to revisit just briefly something from last week that I know caused some ripples in our church. And we talked about evidences of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to revisit that, but here's where I want to start. Are you filled with the Spirit? Have you ever been filled with the Spirit? You're like, how is a person, if you don't know what this is, right now I'm asking you, how is a person filled with the Spirit? If you had to stand, those of you that have been here a long time, those of you that have been Christians a long time, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. If you had to stand on the spot and say, what does that mean? Would you be like, I don't know. I don't know how to be filled with the Spirit. Then listen, and then write it down, and then dare to go home and try it. Because I'm going to propose to you, Being filled with the Spirit, number one, is first of all, it's the prerogative of God. He can fill anybody anytime he wants. But secondary to that, being filled with the Spirit is when a believer consciously chooses, makes a conscious choice, you ready? To acknowledge the Holy Spirit, to invite the Holy Spirit, to surrender to the Holy Spirit. And then to obey the Holy Spirit. Would you write that down? You say, that's what we're called, that's what you're called to do. We make much of God the Father. He's the all in all, He's above everyone. And then Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, second only to God the Father. But we do not discard the Holy Spirit. We please the Father and the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way we do that is by being filled and controlled and consumed with, dominated by the Holy Spirit. You say, how does that happen? Acknowledge the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer Holy Spirit, I acknowledge you as a person. And I invite you to fill me. And I'm going to surrender to what you say to think and what you say to feel and what you say to say and what you say to do. And then when he says that, just obey. Just obey. And every time what I find in the book of Acts in the New Testament is when a person is filled with the Spirit, it always affects what area of their life? Who remembers? Always affects their speech. Every time. It'll affect other areas, but it always affects the speech. So last week, we reviewed eight biblical evidences that a person has the Holy Spirit. Why was that important? That was important because having the Holy Spirit is the evidence that a person's really saved. Just saying you're saved doesn't make you saved. Repeating a prayer after a preacher doesn't make you saved. It's putting your faith in Christ alone, trusting His promises. That makes you saved. The evidence to us and the confirmation within yourself that this was real is you'll have the evidences of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where I've got to clarify something. Y'all are actually now, you're a little more tuned in. That's good. You're like, yeah, 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 this has been bothering me all week now. What's the clarification? To be clear, the evidences of the Holy Spirit will be present In a Christian, but those evidences will vary by person. They will vary within the same person, depending on what day it is. They will vary within the same person, depending on the moment within the day. Is how do you know that? Lived it, living it. The evidence they vary in the degree that they're, they're always present. But the degree that they're present depends on the person, depends which day are you catching me. What part of the day are you catching me? Now, here's what I want to emphasize. Two things, two sides of a coin, and then I'm moving on. You mark it down. When a person is being controlled, dominated, carried along, lifted up and consumed with, so much so that that person is identified with the Holy Spirit, they will have very high levels of assurance. A spirit-filled person, they will, oh, I know I'm a Christian. A person who's filled with the Spirit will have great understanding of the Word. You ever been here just like, whoa, Lord, today it's like I didn't even get the chapter done. You showed me so much. At the time. What? I'm late for work. How did they just, pow. A person who's filled with the Spirit has high levels of understanding, high levels of assurance, high levels of fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. They will have high levels of power spiritually, high levels of guidance. The spirit-filled person is literally, I think God wants me to do that right there. God is, I'm supposed to do that. God, you're telling me to stop doing that. I'm supposed to talk to God, really? Right? I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to talk to you. I'm supposed to give that much. High levels of prompting, high levels of guidance, high levels of gift empowerment, high levels of love for God. The spiritful person really loves God a lot, and they love each other a lot, and they're very aware of sin, very sensitive to sin. Now, here's the flip side. When a Christian neglects to feed their soul and spirit with private daily prayer, In private, feeding their soul and spirit the word of God. I'm just going to tell you, those evidences will be present, but they're going to sputter and be choked down and even get down to a trickle at times. Live being filled. This guy lived being filled with the Holy Spirit. Just a couple more things. Verse 24 tells us that Barnabas was a man of great faith. He was full of faith. And there's two kinds of faith that are high level faith. High level faith, number one, are you here this morning? Is this you? I know God can do that. I know God can do that. That's a high level of faith. Like, There's no doubt in mind. I know God can do that. You're almost there. Because there's one above that. And this other level says, I expect God to do that. God, I am expecting, I'm moving forward as if you are doing this. That one is higher than that one. I think Barnabas lived in the realm of, he expected God. If you're taking notes, write it down. Unlike a lot of other people, Barnabas did not choke. He did not doubt that God could even save uncircumcised Gentiles. When people down in Jerusalem were choking over this, could this even be? Barnabas was like, yep, I expected him to save Saul. I believe he saved Saul. He's not faking. This is the real thing. And yes, he saved these uncircumcised Gentiles. Does everybody catch the two levels of faith there? Because here's, this is so important. This is when salvation occurs. The salvation, genuine salvation occurs when that one level of faith moves to the higher one. If you're here this morning, you're like, I don't really know if I'm a Christian or not. If this is you, I really believe God would save me. I know God can save me because what Christ has done. I really believe He would save me if I trust Christ. That is great. You're almost there. It is when you move to the level of, God, I am expecting you to save me at this moment. I am receiving your salvation at this moment. So much so that having received it, I can say, God, thank you for saving me. That's a higher level of faith. and That's when you really get saved. Our last thing about Barnabas here is verse 25 and 26. and I'm just going to propose it to you. The evidence is very clear. He's a loving man and he's a selfless person. He's loving. He's selfless. Do you see it? Do you see the evidence in verse 25? So, a great many people are added to the Lord. What does Barnabas do? He went to look for Saul. That's a loving man. That's a very selfless man. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? Where do you see that in the text? Saul loves the people, Barnabas loves these people so much, he's like, I want the best for them. And God's favor is that, God's hand, hand of the Lord. But humanly speaking, I know what's best for them. Saul. I'm gonna go get Saul. And he goes and he gets Saul. You say, where are you seeing the selflessness in here? Barnabas had to know that when he goes and brings Saul of Tarsus, who's an apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, who knows more than any of the other apostles, more gifted speaker than himself, he has to know that when I bring Saul of Tarsus here, he's gonna outshine me and God's gonna use him in ways that he's not been using me. But Barnabas literally is like, I'm not even thinking about myself. I want the best for them. We need Saul here. I like this guy. This is a great man. Or if we were to say, according to verse 24, this is a good man full of the Holy Spirit. doesn't even think of himself. Can I share this with you? This is not to prop me up. This is to tell you where I am right now. And so I say this, and always, anytime I say something similar to this, I always have to preface it anymore because I usually get some feedback. I am not planning on resigning. One day will come, I'll have to retire from somewhere. I am not planning. Honestly, my heart, I would love it if the Lord let me retire here. Like, quite a few years, like 13, 14, 15 years from now would be great. In my mind, you may have other plans. God could have other plans. I'm telling you, my heart. But when that day comes, right now, this version of me really wants the next generation of leadership that comes in. To just take you guys to so much higher impact than we will have ever gone with me. Right now, that's my desire. That God would, Lord, you just give us the next people, the next group that just takes it to a whole other level. Make them far more fruitful. I hope when that day comes that the flesh doesn't like start getting jealous and possessive. Which can happen. Happens a lot. This guy loved this church. And so he left. Verse 25, he went to Tarsus, I can imagine. Barnabas, where, where are you going? I need to leave. Wait, no, no, we need you here. I'm coming back. I need to go do something. I need to make an investment some time, and in the end, it's going to benefit you. The plan is going to benefit you, and it does I just got to pull away. And so there's a subtle little message here, a little application. I'm going to throw it out. Listen to me. Sometimes spiritual leaders have to pull back to make some investments so that they can better serve God's people. And in this case, I'm going to go get a guy, and you're going to see the benefit of this. Often it's spiritual leaders. It's in every area of of, of work. I understand that. But particularly in this area, I think sometimes it's good for spiritual leaders to say, you know what? For me to serve you better, I need to pull back. You've heard Deanna talk about silence and solitude retreats. And she'll be talking with you ladies about that. And you need to sign up for that in April. then the last thing this morning is verse 26. Very briefly. And when he had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first place they were called Christians. If you're taking notes, the suffix, I-A-N here, means belonging to. Belonging to. So this new name given by other people is, these people belong to this Christ. I put the two things together. It seems that... Their original message is talking to people about Jesus, the Savior, and Lord. But then as they get into the church and a whole year of teaching and preaching next level, all of a sudden the people start realizing, wait, all along this person has this been prophesied about? This person is the, the Christ, the Messiah? Yes. And now they start talking about Jesus, the Christ. And the people in Antioch are like, these people are always talking about this Christ. Y'all are Christians. You're the Christians. Again, is it derogatory, you Christians, or is it mocking? <laughs> you Christians, or is it, you're the ones who belong to Christ. You're, we're calling you the Christians. I believe all Christians should tell everyone they're a Christian. That's really done initially, effectively through baptism. But your last note this morning is this. Listen, all Christians should tell people they're Christians. But it is very easy to claim to be a Christian. It's easy to claim to be a Christian, especially in America today. But it sure means a whole lot more when other people say that you're a Christian. It means a lot more. The people of Antioch started calling Christ followers Christians. That's when it means more. Hey, you call yourself a Christian? That's great. Does your life match it? As soon as you've written that, don't, don't like click your notebooks and all that. Just kind of, let's finish, and then we'll pray over our meal right here in a moment. Do you understand there's some people in Anderson County that go around and they've let it be known? Yeah, I'm a Christian, but their life does not in any way reflect Jesus' life. Is that you? If you're going to take the name of Christ, then you're actually forming other people's reputation of Him. Your life should match what a Christian's life should look like. The story is told of Alexander the Great years ago, that great Greek general who conquered so much of the known world and the Greek empire set up. Eventually, the Roman Empire took their place. The story is told that Alexander heard of another young man in his ranks who was also called by his same name. This other Alexander was one of the lower soldiers he has the name Alexander, and Alexander the Great knows who he is. The problem is this other Alexander was known to be a coward, and he would run on the battlefield. And the story is Alexander the Great rode up on his horse and said, I'm looking for Alexander, and they point him out, and they're like, are you Alexander? Yes, sir. You either change your name or mend your ways. You change your name or mend your ways. If you're going to run on the battlefield, get a different name. People are thinking that Alexander runs. I don't run. Change your name. So listen, if you're living like a child of disobedience, a child of the devil, and you're following him, and you're not following the Holy Spirit, please don't call yourself a Christian. If you're going to say, I'm a Christian, and you really are, then live filled with the Holy Spirit so that people will say, that must be some God He has changed your life. I want what you have. You are forming Christ's reputation in this community. Would you stand with me this morning? Thank you for your attention. We're going to be dismissed. I trust that you will join us to your left up here at the front. Give a moment. Let any of our elderly folk, you know those that are 53 and older. (laughs) Older than that. But if you'd give a moment, and those of you that are a little older, please make your way so you don't get run over. Because we're hungry, right? You're invited to stay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this man that we're able to see some qualities and characteristics that we need to have in our life. Lord, I pray that we would be trustworthy and we'd be honest. We'd be wise and discerning. Father, I pray that we'd be very gracious, demonstrate it, promote it. Father, I pray that we would be exhorters let us be exhorters let us receive exhortation Father I pray that we would be full of the Holy Spirit have strong evidence of Him in our life I pray that we'd be full of faith the kind that lives expecting you to do great things Father I pray that we'd be loving and selfless following this example we've seen this good man this morning so Lord thank you for these that have come I pray that you'd bless the food. Thank you for those that have helped display it and prepare it in various ways. God, I pray that you'll be pleased with our fellowship. Just put your your hand. We know that your hand is the deciding factor. Would you just put your hand in favor on the whole day? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This way, right through there. And thank you.